I've written something here that you don't need to be concerned about yet. We'll get to that as we move to chapter four. But um, I want to spend, and we may not even get to that depending on uh, the discussion here, the last of the seven churches, and this is our subject for this morning, is Laodicea, which is chapter three, verse 14 and following. And this, as I said, this is the last. If you're following in your notes, it's at the bottom of page 12. This is, um, well, I was going to say it, but, well, I'll sort of say it that way. In some ways, the Laodicean church parallels the North American evangelical church of the 21st century. There's a real uh, parallel there. Now, I have to be careful because, obviously, what Jesus is doing here is not saying we fit it exactly into our time. We're trying to look at how the Lord Jesus evaluates his church and those seven churches, with this being the seventh one, it really gives us a window into how the Lord of the church looks at his church. So what do we have here? If you look at the notes, and this is really, if you don't get all of this historical material, you miss the point of what Jesus is saying. And if you look at um, the map that we, we, we give you on page eight, uh, you see Laodicea is in a valley, and it was a very, very important city. It was a great banking center of that Roman province of Asia, indeed for much of the eastern Mediterranean world. It had a great medical school. Now, I mean, don't think of the UNMC, but I mean, it was a medical school and in terms, I mean, the Greco-Roman world was really investigating how all the parts of the body work. And they, they, they focused a lot in this medical center on the eye. And they developed a kind of eye salve that helped people who had all kinds of eye conditions. And in addition, uh, it was also a, a, a city that was, as I mentioned, a, a key city along a major Roman road that was very wealthy because of trade. It was just connected right with Ephesus and so it was just a very wealthy city, but there's one very, very unusual aspect of this city. As you know, at least I think you know, the, the Greco-Roman world of the first century brought the water into their cities via aqueducts. You, you know what I mean by that, don't you? I mean, everybody, you've seen pictures of those. Maybe you've seen them if you traveled in the, in the, in the uh, Europe area or in the Middle East, because uh, many of them still exist and some of them are still functioning. What was unusual about this is they brought their water in from a, a city not too far from Laodicea, Hariopolis. And it was warm water. It was water that had a, 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 a taste to it that people that never had been to Laodicea before Hariopolis, they took it. Sometimes they'd vomit. It would be that kind of warm, tepid water that I don't know about you, but I like water that's cold. And I like water that has it, that doesn't have any aftertaste to it. I, I hope you're understanding what I mean. And so this this Laodicea city, it was wealthy, it was comfortable, it was uh, prosperous, it had a lot of cutting edge technological things, and yet, despite all that, it had this rather curious water system that it that it used uh, to to uh, provide water for its people. Keep all of those things in mind as you hear Jesus evaluate this church. You with me? Do you understand? Is it going to make a lot of sense in terms of what the Lord Jesus said? So with that background, again, some of that's in your notes if you're really interested in getting more detail. Verse, one, uh, verse 14, the first verse of what Jesus does. He addresses, he addresses them by defining himself. He's done this with each church. The amen the faithful and true witness in the beginning could translate that the source of the creation of God says this. Now that's instructive how Jesus is identifying himself. Um, I think you know this, but in case you don't, Amen is a title of God. It is a t- term we use often at the end of prayers or we hear somebody say something we agree with and say Amen. It, it really establishes the certainty and truthfulness and dependability and um, um, genuineness of something. 
So it's a title of God. It means certainty, genuine, truthful. That's why he says, I am that. Uh, true, faithful and true witness. Uh, what he says is consistent, reliable, dependable. And then something we haven't seen before, the source of creation. The beginning of creation, the source, literally could translate that source. That echoes back to like John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and so on. So the, the Lord Jesus, this is really important, the Lord Jesus is identifying himself in this final uh, letter to the church at Laodicea, this final of seven, as the authoritative, truthful, unique, dependable, create, creating God. Indisputable, what he's claiming there. There's no question about it. So based on that kind of authority, this is what he says to them. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you. Literally, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, think of what I just said about their water system. So when Jesus says it that way, he is in effect saying, you are so tepid and so putrid and so complacent and so apathetic and so inconsistent in what you do, because I know your deeds. I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now that that will be explained in verse 19. But um, let's think about this for just a little bit. When Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, what does he really mean? Obviously, he isn't referring to the temperature of water there. He's using the analogy of their water system, but what does he mean they're neither hot nor cold? Worship is... Okay, their worship, okay. Indifferent? Indifferent, ah. Lukewarm can identify with or be synonymous with indifferent? Anything else? They're, they're not making a difference. They're not standing out. Okay. Their presence as a church in Laodicea was having no effect. What does the Lord, think of Matthew 5, what does the Lord call us to be? His salt and his light. We could infer from the words of the Lord here they were having no impact, salt or light. So what, what, what words might we use to describe this church? Would superficial fit? Would shallow fit? Complacent fit? Now this is going to almost sound brutally unkind. This is a church that was very comfortable presumably very prosperous, but making no impact whatsoever on the culture. Would that be fair? Would that maybe fit? I mean, Jesus, what Jesus is saying to them is, you're not making any impact, you're not making any difference. A lukewarm Christianity is an ineffectual, complacent, comfortable, apathetic, what other words can I use? Christianity. Yes, sir. What would you say now, if we fast forward 2,000 years, we know Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. By being a quiet Christian, how do you look at that? Is that being complacent? Somebody said, I'm not like that. I don't want to talk to my neighbors in regards about religion or filth. What's your opinion as far as you? <laughs> well, let me address it from this perspective, which I, I just briefly alluded to at the very beginning of, of our class this morning. In some ways, you really could compare what the Lord is saying about Laodicea here with the North American evangelical church. Not the broad statement, but I 
as compared to right now some other some other churches in other parts of the world, um, the North American Evangelical Church is is not making the kind of impact that it once right. did. Now there are a lot of reasons for that, but all and and those reasons are complicated. But I think what the Lord Jesus is asking us to do is not just look at everything around and all the things that are happening in culture. Just look at you as the church. That's all. That's all Jesus is saying. Because this was a church. I mean, they were the, honestly the church at Laodicea was like a church that would be in New York City or a church that's in Chicago. Very prosperous. Very. You know, I'm talking about the city. Very prosperous, very wealthy, very modern, very comfortable. I mean, almost everything that can be provided is in these big urban areas. That's what Laodicea was like. So how does the church fit into that? Does the church have that same demeanor of complacency and and prosperity and ineffectualness? Because in, in, um, in the church at Laodicea, what Jesus was... But Jesus was upset about, if, and I think that is definitely what the metaphor of lukewarm means, you are making no impact whatsoever. But it doesn't specifically talk about impact here in these verses, does it? I mean, that's sort of what you're implying from this. I mean, it, it talks more about kind of their spiritual temperature, their faith, their... But Jim, those two are inextricably linked, know, aren't I, they? But, but no, I, I agree with you. I, I mean, he is—he wants them to look inward at themselves. But as they look inward at themselves, as Jesus also will, will briefly talk, the impact you're making outside is therefore nil. If you're spiritually, he doesn't say they're dead. He doesn't say they're spiritually dead. He says they're spiritually lukewarm. So if you're spiritually lukewarm, then the Great Commission doesn't mean anything to you. Helping needy people doesn't mean anything. You see, you're so insular, and I think that's kind of the point. But you are right. He's not directly speaking about things outside their fellowship. So, so where I was going with sure. that point then was, sure. is his greater concern then about kind of the spiritual status of an individual? I mean, are, are you really excited about your faith, or is it by implication that you're not making an impact, or is it... Well, can you separate those? Yeah. Yeah. He's just hurt by um, kind of their their spiritual lethargy and apathy. No. And that's that's a good way to put it. Hurt by that. I think he is. And then because of that, they are having no impact in in any. But you're, you're right. And to some extent, that might be true because of how he looks in verse 20. Uh, or how, what Jesus says in verse 20, where he's really, ta- we sometimes use verse 20 as a salvation verse. That's not how it's being used here. It's a verse about renewing fellowship. That's really what it is. So it is a very personal thing for the Lord Jesus. And although he doesn't directly say that, I think your word is a legitimate inference. He's hurt by this. That he wants them to be hot. But can I use that? He wants them to be hot in their faith. And they're not cold, dead, like the Sardis church was. This is a church that's just lukewarm. You know. That's right. So that's, it's, it's the kind of thing that I think can often, can often characterize, again, I, I'm not saying everybody, but can often characterize the North American evangelical church. We, we compartmentalize things, we go to church, but... That real deep love for Jesus is sort of missing. John, your hand. Oh, um, he says you're 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 neither hot nor cold. I wish you'd be one or the other. I thought that was an interesting statement. I mean, mm. he'd like him to be hot, certainly, Absolutely. but why cold? Uh, mm. I mean, unless he'd rather just have him dead and and, <laughs> and uh, you know. Uh, so I, I, I was a little puzzled about that. Not that it's a big deal or anything. But. Um, not perhaps so much that he wishes they were cold, and that's his desire will for them, but at least it would be clear to me what your choice is. You're trying to yeah. 
You're trying to have this, this intimate relationship with me on your terms. And you'll compartmentalize things. You'll divide things in your life. The, my lordship and, and personal intimacy with you isn't really an important part of your life. I just wish you'd either reject me or be in love with me. Yeah. Instead of trying to do this crazy, have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and trying to live like that. That, that kind of lukewarm, compartmentalized Christianity is not what Jesus is interested in. John, uh, Fred. Um, if we think of the thief on the cross, and he had dedicated his life to thievery and a lot of other things that we really weren't privy to, but, uh, you know, he, he came to Christ and, and he said, remember me. Mm-hmm. And he had nothing to redeem himself other than at that point in time, he looked upon Christ, it seems, mm-hmm. with faith believing that he was who he claimed to be. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. Amen. And, and then you think of uh, Saul, who was just gone whole, let's kill him. And, uh, you know, it, it seems like in some ways he has a heart for those people, either, like you say, hot or cold, but I'll relate to you, whether you're hot or cold, based upon where I know your heart is. It seems like today we talk about people being religious because they go to church. <coughs> and... and Religion is maybe a, a discipline, but not necessarily attached to God. I think you could probably say with accuracy, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship with the living God. Um, the word religion is only used twice in the Bible, in the book of James. And it, it, it does seem to be a word that, that the scriptures just kind of stay away from. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it can be an important word because it involves belief, it involves practice, but it seems to want to stay away from that and focus instead on the relational dimension of our walk with God. And that relationship, and uh, Jim, uh, in his comment a couple minutes ago, is accurate. The real focus here is, is on their relationship, and then you just you kind of draw the inferences on what the impact of that is. If it's a lukewarm relationship, where it's compartmentalized, isn't very deep, and doesn't mean very much, it's going to impact just about everything else. So I think that's really important for us to remember. And again, just to think of it in terms of religious worldviews we're familiar with today. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, so on, they're religions. Because they're all looking at what do I need to do to gain the favor of my God, whatever those particular belief systems are. Christianity is not saying that. Christianity is saying there's nothing you can do to earn or merit a relationship with me. I've done all of it through the cross of Jesus and all that. And just you know, accept that gift. And that begins the relationship. Because that's why God, I believe that's why God created us in the first place. And I think that's why God's redeemed us. It is that relationship that he wants. And this is what is missing. Uh, well, let me phrase it this way. This perspective is what is missing with the Laodiceans. They're going through the motions, but it doesn't mean anything to them for the most part. That intimacy and vitality and vibrancy presumably is missing. Because if there's intimacy and vibrancy, etc., that's hot. If there's an outright rejection, I don't want to get that's cold. But they've got one foot here and one foot here, and they're trying to straddle everything. And I'm making some of that up, but I think it's, it's legitimate to think of that. I think four hands went up. So but Rob, no Rob in the back. Thank there. you. There's You're an old a, saw that says the true opposite of love is not good. It's indifference. Mm. Mm. That is what I think the Lord is getting at here, that indifference, that complacency. It's a, okay. Picture. Uh, so what you're saying actually is they're not growing. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They're not growing. No, the yeah. Lord was getting upset about. Well, it, yes, but it's more. It's more than that, though. It's I mean, even 
going back a step, before you can even begin to grow, you have to understand the intimacy of the relationship that I'm desiring. And it's just a, an indifference to that on the part of, of the Lord. Woody and then Tom. Yeah, I, I just really like this uh, verse 19 and 20. Uh, We're getting there. It's like, you know, uh, he's saying, first he's kind of reading the riot act and telling them he messing up, you know. And then, mm-hmm. he, and then he's saying, but I love you. That's right. And if I didn't, I wouldn't try to discipline you That's or right. correct you. That's right. And, and then he invites them, so be yeah. earnest and repent. Yeah. Yep. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. Mm-hmm. If anyone hears my voice or opens the door and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So that's his relationship. That's right. Invitation, he, you know. He wants... Mm-hmm. I'm not firing you. We're still, mm-hmm. you know, I still love you. And, that's right. But you, you're doing wrong. That's right. You're not doing enough. Yeah. Renew, yeah. renew the relationship. Renew the relationship with me. Tom? I guess the question, I know, I know we're on a seven, we've gone through all these seven churches and different things, and I know you can't lose your salvation, I know that too, but are some of the, would you say some of these churches maybe are in false pretense to the, you know, to the really, really the relationship with Christ, you know, I mean, are you not saying that in any of these, he's making, you know, he's saying different things about different ones, you know, too, he didn't, you know, but, uh, and because um, I think of when the verses say, you know, broad is the way of destruction, narrow is the gate to heaven, you know, and then I see some of these things that's going on and all these, I just try to going through that in my mind as I'm looking at these passages. Is that, I mean, I'm not trying to put point figures at them saying, oh, they're not saved, you know, because they're not, you know, you're not supposed to be lukewarm or, you know, he wants you hot, you know, or he doesn't want you cold, you know, so I, I, was, I was just going through these, I just keep thinking about all that stuff, you know, so... Well, the bottom line is he still loves us. Yeah, I know he does. And, and, and the door is always open. Yeah. You know? and well, I think that's what he's telling all these churches. He's not, that's the way I'm getting it. Yeah. And I do think it is instructive at the end of each one of these seven churches, like we see in verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Mm-hmm. I think we are to always understand that Jesus is addressing believers. Hear what the Spirit has to say. A person who doesn't know Christ and doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to them will have no effect. Mm-hmm. And you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, it seems to me it's helpful for us to keep remembering that. And you see it in verse 21. He keeps using the word overcomer. An overcomer is 1 John 5, 4. The overcomer is the one who has put his faith in Christ. You see what I'm saying? So because he keeps using these consistent labels, terms, maybe terms is a better word, it keeps driving us back. These are believers. And Tom, um, at any individual's point in their life or at any church's point in its life, I'm talking about an organic group of believers gathered together, you're going to see all these, you're going to see people in the, with these characteristics. And you're going to see churches that have been founded and that you know are, are growing or not growing. And Jesus is just saying, you are not where I want you to be. Mm-hmm. Now start changing, start making, and, and what, he, what he's correct. I think the, 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 the message is, this is Jesus' church. And Jesus' church, he loves. Mm-hmm. He died for that church. And so he, his goal is to have a church that is in love with him, Ephesians, deeply in love with him, not indifferent, Laodicea, but hot, and making an impact. Because if, if, if his church is not being and doing what he wants it to do, the, the gospel's not getting out. The Great Commission will not be fulfilled. And, I mean, it's all those things are linked together, but I know what you're saying, Tom, but I think we have to keep coming back. He is talking to his church. He's not talking to the world here. He's talking to his church. And the, the, the church is just a messy thing. It's, it's a thing that, I mean, I've worked in the church all my life. It's just frustrating and people, and you want to throw them against the wall. You want to bang them over the head. And, I mean, it's just there seems because they just, you know, you, well, you, don't you understand what the Lord Jesus wants you to do here? 
And you know, and yet you look at, I think you're just an individual believer or a body, you look at where they were 10 years ago and look at where they are today. Yes. You know, they, they're still growing. It's inch by inch. You know, Swindoll has a book, uh, you know, one step forward, two steps backward. One step forward, two, but you, know, you still are making progress, you know, one over time. It's just, ugh. And I just think Jesus is here, and, and this is how I love to preach this. Jesus is here evaluating his church and saying hard things to his church. And in some cases, like Philadelphia, he's just praising them and, you know, and very positive things about Ephesus, but there's something that's really missing. And here is a church that it's indifference. You can just tell it's driving the Lord crazy. I don't know if I could say that of God. I may shouldn't say it that way, but you know what I mean. All right, good questions. Um, I think good questions and comments, because some of them are uh, comments. Um, Look at verse 17. You say, I'm rich and have become wealthy. Why would they say that? Well, because of the nature of Laodicea in the church. But from Jesus' perspective, you have need of nothing, but you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor, and blind, and naked. <laughs> their, I think we can say this, their prosperity has helped lull them into this indifference, thinking, you yeah, know, we're pretty good. Man, we are, we're moving along here. We got a really big building and all the good things and so yeah, on. We're blessed. Jesus, yeah, and, Je- yeah. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you know, from my perspective, is you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. And so the Lord, and I love verse 18 and 19 and 20. Jesus takes, and I, I wrote this in the notes. Jesus takes on the role here of like a merchant. And he comes into the town and comes into the churches at Laodicea and said, I advise you to buy this from me. Gold refined by fire that you may become rich. White garments that you may clothe yourselves in that the shame of your nakedness may be revealed and the eye salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Now, every one of those has to be understood metaphorically. I mean, it's not like Jesus is saying, okay, buy your salvation. That's not what he's talking. He's saying, I am the Lord of the church. You have to understand your spiritual poverty and need for dependence on me. Jesus says in Matthew, the first of the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are the poor in spirit. The person that's blessed is recognizing their spiritual poverty and need for utter dependence on me. Understand that I offer you the white garments, the sanctifying, cleansing righteousness that clothes you and covers you in spiritual nakedness and spiritual shame. Your indifference and complacency is shameful. I'll take care of that. And that your eye, you know, he uses this chromatid, which they produced in that little medical school, which was an eye salve. Jesus said, I have a better eye salve. I'll give it to you so your eyes may, what does that mean? Your spiritual eyes may open. Did you ever sing in your church, open my eyes, Lord? Did you ever sing yeah. that? That's a great little, I often have them sing it before I preach, because I want people to have their spiritual eyes open to understand what God's spirit is saying to them through his word. And that's what Jesus is saying. Let me open your eyes. You've, you've got a crust of indifference over your eyes. Let me get rid of that with the salve. I'm, you see, understand what he's doing with these metaphors? As, as what he so correctly said, he's not giving up on this church. He loves this church. And he's offering what they indifferently, complacently don't even realize they need which is a renewed, in-depth love relationship with him. And then verse 19, he says, if you don't, I, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to reprove you. That takes you back to Hebrews chapter 12. The Lord disciplines and reproves those whom he loves. It's the image of the Heavenly Father. 
father always disciplines and reproves his children to get them back on the track. And then this, and Woody read this, so I won't read it again. But verse 20 is not an invitation of salvation. We sometimes, but that's really not correct. This is an invitation for fellowship. This is Jesus, let's renew it. Renew your fellowship with me. It's, it's like, it's, the, it's almost incredible. Here's Jesus outside the, the, the door of the church. You know. Will you let me in? You know, it's like, so it, it doesn't have anything to do with, it's renew the fellowship. And the image is of dining. It's word there in Greek is the main meal of the day. And fellowship in the ancient world was all, we still, actually, we still sort of do that today. Real close fellowship is have a meal together. You invite somebody over to your house for a meal or your breakfast. I mean, it's just something about that. That's what Jesus is saying. Let's, let's, let's dine. Let's fellowship. Let's restore what we once had. It's been said so many times, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, guess who moved? So that's what Jesus is in effect saying. And then he just promises them again. This is why I believe we, he is writing to believers. He who overcomes, 1 John 5, 4, the overcomer is the one who's put his faith in Christ. I'll grant you to sit down with me on my throne. Now I also overcame and sat down with the Father on his throne. Again, that promise, that reward to rule and reign with Christ. And then the this, this statement, he was here, let him hear, and so on. So those three things, you know, that I am going to reprove you if you do not change. Restore your fellowship with me. And don't forget, I am promising you a reward. Now that, we'll get into some of that if you want to, but it's, it's a, he's not given up, but yet he's speaking very um, harshly to them to waken them out of their indifference and complacency. Um, so anyway, it, there's more we could say about it, but it's a great, it's a great message to, uh, to the church. And I think it's, uh, it's perhaps a really appropriate message and reminder to the North American Evangelical Church that um, what the Lord wants to see is not indifference or complacency. So, Jim, this, we pointed out a problem here. Um, there's no solution. Uh, what are the key elements that you think Christ would have us do today as a, as a church uh, in America? Just like three or four major items that would rekindle our spirit. Well, I think... Um, one thing that I, I have noticed it with my students in the last 10, 15 years, I've noticed it in a, a, lot, of, a lot of the churches I've been in uh, in the last 15 years or so, and I've noticed it even in a lot of the work with uh, individuals that I've done over these last years. Um, Fred, I think there is a tendency um, as a part of this indifference to, com- I use that word, compartmentalize our lives. In other words, that you know, it we go to church, and we eleven o'clock on a Sunday morning is the most important morning for me. But you know, what happens then really doesn't have much to do with the rest of my life. I think that's really upsetting to Jesus. Yeah, he he is the Lord of our lives, and he's a twenty four seven Lord, and everything that is in His Word is to affect everything we do. If he's the Lord, that means he's not just Lord of what happens Sunday morning. He's, and so it affects my work, it affects my family life, it affects my role as a father or a husband, whatever that might be. It affects all of this. And Jesus is very interesting. He's a 24-7 Savior. So it seems to me the antidote, and that's part of what verse 20 is all about, it's, it's to recognize that his Lordship, he means that. And everything he teaches us, it becomes the... One of my business friends says, the Bible has become the manufacturer's handbook in my life. Isn't that a great way to put that? The manufacturer's handbook. My creator is telling me everything I need to live the life that's pleasing to him. Instead of compartmentalizing it, and so we make him the vital center of of our lives. I think that is one of the most important 
aspects of the disease of indifference I've seen. It drives me, it drives me absolutely up a tree when I talk to some of these young guys who they, there's no question of their relationship with the Lord, but they are still learning in very practical terms in their lives what it means for him to be really genuinely the Lord of my life. Where I am thinking and drawing him in and involving him in everything I do. Because to say Jesus is not interested in my work <clears throat> violates everything in the scriptures. That Jesus is not interested in my friend, my relationship with my friends, that's crazy. <laughs> if you're married, that Jesus is not interested in a wholesome, healthy, vital marriage, you're crazy. The Bible has much to say about that. And so it's that kind of, the more, the more you understand that, the less indifferent and complacent you are, and the more energized and vital your relationship with the living God through Christ is. So really, Fred, that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> now, I don't mean to make a joke of it, but to just lessen the tension a little bit. This is very intense stuff. But, I mean, it, it isn't simple, but there is no other way to talk about this. The cure for indifference is passion for Christ. And passion for Christ comes from a renewed understanding and refreshed understanding of who he is, what he's done, and what he desires. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to look at him as a fair-weather friend. That's not what he died. He didn't die for us to be our fair-weather friend. He died for us, for us to recognize him for his lordship. And that he really has our best interests at hand. And he wants us to walk with him hand in hand through life. So, I mean, that's just, that, there's so many other, instead of here's a five-step plan, I think that is the heart of it. I really do. So if we take a look at the, the middle of page 13, it's just another way of pulling all the threads together of chapter 2 and chapter 3. From the Lord of the church's perspective, from the one who founded the church and wants to grow the church, what does a revived, spiritually alive, dynamic church look like? And all I did was try to take, and there's nothing sacred about these words, but it's just a way to take all this together. A church, and remember, church is people. The church organically is people. It's not just a, an organization who are deeply in love with Jesus, are willing to suffer for Jesus. Always stands for truth and never compromises on truth. Never tolerates a syncretism that mixes truth with error. That it's kind of a dangerous thing in our culture today. A church of people who are spiritually alive and vital in relationship with him. Consistently obedient like Philadelphia was, and energized, and I just put it as a, a metaphor, hot for Christ. Not indifferent, but he is the vital center of life. Recognizing and consistently walking with a, a Lord who wants to be a 27 Lord, 24-7 Lord. And there's no better way to live than that. But it takes, and as I think Woody is the one who said this, it takes... It takes a long time for us to get that. And our, our Lord is just very patient with us. He's very patient with yeah. us. He still loves us. There's nothing we can do that will cause God to love us more or less than he does right now. It's an unconditional love. But that unconditional love necessitates, as he says here in verse 19, a reproof and discipline. And sometimes that's harsh to get us back to the track of obedience. Is there any evidence, biblical or extra, that suggests any of these seven churches responded to these? Churches? Yes, there is. Um, the Laodicean church, the, it, there are some things that Paul writes uh, that seems to indicate um, uh, that, that they were on the track of getting that. The post, uh, well, she might put that, in the second century church, some of the immaterial we have, this is extra biblical, Laodicean, the Ephesian church, um, yeah, there seems to be some evidence they really got it. But you know, Jim, it's only one generation. Then the next generation has to recommit to that. And that one of the tragedies is 
um, all of those seven churches would be lost to Islam in not too many centuries and would go out of existence as independent church, uh, as uh, separate churches. Now, many of them fled those areas and so on, but uh, yeah. I, the, the church at Philadelphia remained, which was one Jesus said nothing negative about, remained one of the powerhouse churches of Asia, just consistently well into the third century. It was a remarkable church. So what the Lord said about it are very positive things, as you know, that continued. They remained that solid. Ephesus had another peak, and then they drop off again. It would be very sad by the time you get to the 300s. All right. Are we done with the seven churches? I want to begin, uh, well, we do have about 12, 13 minutes. I want to begin chapter 4 and 5. Chapter 4 and chapter 5, I hope hope you can get the wonderful thrust of these chapters. Because John is taken into the throne room of heaven. And what we see here is John's description of the throne room. And this is where, I I don't know if you're going to be able to see it. There's a fair amount of light coming into this room. But John gives us a description of, of the throne room. And so let me, this is, I write horribly, so I don't know if you'll be able to see it. And I mentioned this in the notes. It's really, that's why you don't imagine this in your mind, the mind picture. It's a series of concentric circles. Concentric circles like a bullseye, you know what I mean? So, anyway, in the center is obviously the throne. And from chapters 4 and 5, it's God the Father, at the right hand of the Father is the Son, and then flowing out of the throne are the seven spirits, which 11, Isaiah chapter 11 tells us is the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So in the throne, you see God. Then immediately around the throne, so I just drew this as a second concentric circle, was a four leaves, a mysterious, difficult to understand, four living creatures who guard and trumpet the holiness of God. Then the next circle, the 24 elders, and we'll see them described. They keep coming up throughout the book. They keep coming up. And they're worshiping and adoring. Then the last, and this is it's just an, an untold number, a host, myriad, the words that are used in the book of Revelation, of angels and saints, the saints, those who have been redeemed, and so on. So what you see, and this is, really, this is what's really interesting, because the Roman emperors at the heights of the seizure call, wanted to set up the worship of them in a series of concentric circles. Those closest to them in power, they were the first circle. They worshipped him, bowed down. Then the, then the Roman legion officers, they bowed down and worshipped. And then the governors of the provinces, they bowed down and worshipped. Then everybody else. So it's like, and that's how, you, that's how they looked at Rome, like concentric circles. And so, as it does throughout the book of Revelation, the real source of power and adoration and worship is what is going on in heaven. At the throne of God. And so, if you kind of, and I know this isn't very neat, but if you keep this kind of image in your mind as we read chapter 4 and into chapter 5, you get, I think, the correct picture of how we're to see this and understand this. So with that in mind, I want you to just let me read and just follow, and I'll make comments about this. After these, I'm in verse 1 of chapter 4 now. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven. First voice which I heard, now notice the simile, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. That takes us back to chapter 1, verse 19. I want to show you what was, what is, and what is to come. So now it's the focus on the future. So the book, the rest of the book is going to be on the future, but we're introduced to the future by going into the throne room of God. And by the time we're done with chapter 5, it begs this question. When will this come to the rebellious planet? When does this come to earth? 
because everybody in heaven isn't saying, well, let's have a debate. Is Jesus really God or is he just a great man? They're not debating that. What are they doing? They're worshiping him. So the question, it just begs that question, when will this come to us? So that's how this is introduced to us by this majestic picture of the throne room of God. Immediately, verse 2, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. So God, through the Holy Spirit, supernaturally transports John to heaven. You follow me? That's what that means. And then verse 3 is just a description of the throne, and it is a series of similes. Now, simile is, is a figure that's always introduced by like or as. So just keep that in mind. He was sitting, was like a jasper. He isn't a jasper stone, but like a jasper. Jasper is a very clear, brilliant stone. And a sardius, and as sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. This resembles very much what Isaiah sees in Isaiah chapter 6, what you see in Ezekiel, in uh, Exodus chapter 28, and what you see in the book of Ezekiel. What you see are just all of these similes trying to describe the magnificence of God's throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And the word crown there is Stephanos. It's, it's not diadem. The diadem is the crown of royalty. That's not the crown here. It's the crown, the crown of victory, not the crown of royalty. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us that's the Holy Spirit. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes, four beyond. So if you look at the throne, four living creatures, 24 elders. That's how we were to put that together. Now verse 7 is a description, and this this is very difficult for us, but it's a description of these four living creatures. The first creature was like, notice the simile, lion. The second creature, like a calf. Some of your translations might have ox. Third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying angel. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, day and night they didn't cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was who is and who is to come. So they are leading in praise and worship of God. These mysterious, hard to understand, hard to grasp, four living creatures, these weird and bizarre descriptions of them, they are leading the heavenly host in worship. In your notes, and I, I, I think this is, we, we don't have time to get in this in-depth study. But in your notes, I refer on page 14, uh, verse 6b through 8, the four living creatures should be linked to the seraphim that Isaiah sees in chapter 6 and the creatures that Ezekiel sees in chapter 1, the throne chariot of God. It's exactly the same description. So these creatures are the highest order of God's created beings that are involved in the worship and government of God. I commented the faces of the lion, ox, man, flying creature suggest the attributes of God, royal power, strength, spirituality, swiftness of action. Some suggest they refer to, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I'm not sure we can be real, uh, real positively co- uh, confident there. But the point is they're leading the heavenly hosts in worship. And if you look at verse 9, back now in the book of Revelation chapter 4, and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever, and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne. 
So they're crowned. Many suggest these 24 elders are key leaders throughout the history of the church. I don't know how we should understand that, but it's interesting they present their crowns to the Lord, which leads some to suggest what? We will lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus as well. Because the ultimate in worship is everything that he has given us, we give back to him in worship and adoration. And then you have this remarkable praise hymn. It is the only one in the Bible that singularly focuses on God as creator. Many others in the Psalms and other mix creation and redemption together, but this singularly focuses on God as creator. Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou dost to create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were, creator, were created. It is the celebration and adoration of God as creator and sustainer of all things. Now, I want to, if not a bunny trail, it's central to this. One of the major, major themes of the Bible that is often neglected is that God is the creator. In, in this day and age in which you and I live, we hear a great deal about Jesus Christ as the redeemer, but he's also the creator. God is not only the redeemer of lost humanity, God is the creator of all things. Why is that such an important doctrine? Because he's God. Because he's God. Why is it a doctrine that so, sometimes people don't particularly want to talk about? Because it establishes supremacy and our responsibility to bow down before them. If God is the creator and sustainer of all things, what does that mean for you and me? We're accountable to him. I mean, he has the right to hold us accountable. Now, I say that because I, my own view is, not, and this is not something I can't get inside the mind of every single human being on earth, but one of the reasons why I think naturalist, naturalist is an atheist, a person who's thoroughly secular, why they resist the idea of God as creator, and they want to come up with an alternate explanation, of some impersonal force or whatever it is, Darwin called it natural selection, whatever you want to call it, is because if, if you can eliminate that idea, that means I'm not accountable to him. And I don't, I don't need to be concerned about him. But the moment, the moment you establish that God is creator, there are a whole series of dominoes that necessarily start to fall. And that, that, is a, that is why I think, and again, I, mean, I don't know if I can prove that, but I think that's why that is one of the major pushbacks in the 21st century, is that just this idea of God as creator. Oof. Like it's about God as a little one who loves us and that you know, cares about us, and all, but let's stay away from this idea of God as creator. Let's not really talk much about that one. And yet the Bible, I did a thing for my church. Uh, we have a men's training thing we do every Tuesday morning, and I'm doing a series with them. I'm just finishing that. But this last two, this week and the week before, was on God as creator, why that is so important in the Bible. And honestly, as I was preparing, I was struck. I was struck by how many times in the Bible that theme of God as creator, it's everywhere in the Bible. I mean, it's just everywhere. And I, I just, for my own study and my own personal growth, it was good for me to go through that preparation, to be reminded again how central that teaching is in the Bible. It's not just Genesis 1. It's everywhere in the Bible. How Paul, I just was studying this for another class. In the book of Ephesians, Paul is in chapter 2, he's talking about all the great things Jesus did as a redeemer, and he says, who also created all things. And I said, that's right. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have to say that. He could just put a period after being our redeemer. He said, and who created all things. Reminding us again that he is the creator and his, his, his act of creation to, to create image bearers, humanity, who would walk with him in love and fellowship, choose instead rebellion. He wins them back through the program of redemption. 
and offers the gift of salvation. But I'm just saying, so you have this unique right out of the shoe, this praise him to God as he's the creator and sustainer of all things. That's important for us. Okay? Rob. Well, you're demonstrating your aversion to politics very strongly here. I am? Yes, because, well, you have not mentioned the dec- in the Declaration of Independence. It mm. refers to our Creator. Yeah, yeah. Our founders understood the concept that you are talking about. They were theists, not deists. They believed strongly in the power of the Christian religion and Christ Himself. In the 20th century and the 21st century, we are feeling a movement that pointedly debunks the notion of the creation. Oh, absolutely. 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 So, with chapter 4 now, and this worshipful passage, it's short, but it's it's quite powerful. Next week, we'll do chapter 5, and chapter 5 is uniquely focused on the praise of the sun, S-O-N. But it starts with this, there's a book, there's a book that needs to be opened. And the question is, who is worthy to open that book? And of course, the answer to that question is Jesus. But what I, as you, I'd like you to read it. And I'd like you to notice something as you read it. Jesus is described as the Lion of Judah, but also the Lamb of God. So he's both a lion and a lamb, which is... That's, that's an oxymoron. That's almost seemingly, con- but it isn't. He is the Vedic king, the Lion of Judah, who is also the Lamb of God. And that's what this wonderful section puts together. And that's why you see those, the, the praise hymn that then is in the next section, that is still chapter 5, verse 8, 9, 10, etc. They're praising him for that. It's really, it's a wonderful section that ties all the threads of the Old and New Testament together. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a great, great hymn. So I'm excited. I wish I could go right into it today, but we'll do that next week. Then we'll start chapter 6. Read chapter 5, though. Yeah, well, it will be on 5 for a while, but we'll start 6 then, and that starts, that starts the dominoes falling in terms of the of uh, what we will call, using the words of Jesus, the tribulation. We'll review a couple things to get set for that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this reminder from the uh, evaluation, Lord Jesus, that you gave of Laodicea, how indifference and complacency is upsetting to you. You want to see your church not only deeply in love with you, but seeing you as a 24-7 Lord and Savior, involved in absolutely everything in our lives, willingly we want that, to desire to walk with you in intimacy and fellowship, and you're standing at the door, ready to renew that fellowship. Lord, I hope each one of us around the table has not only made that key decision of faith, but is also desiring to walk with you, not uh, keeping you distant, not compartmentalizing things in our lives, but truly keeping you at the center of our lives, desiring to fellowship and walk with you intimately, personally. And we thank you, too, for that window that was lifted very briefly into the throne room of God in chapter 4, where we see the structure of the heavenly host, and we see the majesty and power and authority manifested in the worship that results. And uh, we uh, are looking forward to the study of chapter 5, which is a great chapter, focusing on Jesus is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. We want to put all those together and just be reminded of how incredibly important to get it right with Jesus really is. We pray for Fred and his family, and especially this one loved one, um, who um, whoever it is that has this brain tumor, but apparently they are, uh, after the test, it is not cancerous, and that's good. But we pray for wisdom and discernment as the medical people minister to this uh, member, 
and uh, I'm sure develops a plan of what to do and how to address this. So we do pray for that, commit them to you. Wrap your arms around them, give comfort and strength to each one of them, and we entrust that to you. So Lord, as we go now our separate ways, protect us, watch over us, and help us to represent you, our Savior, and our Lord. Help to represent you well, in Christ's name, amen. See you next week.